Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 95. It's titled, Keep Investing Simple. Last night, I did something that I had not done in decades. My son convinced Lapril and I, along with our daughter, to go roller skating. The local college rents out this gym and has roller skates to rent, and so we strapped on our skates at the rink, and I hadn't gone. I was probably 14 or 15 the last time I went roller skating. We used to go at Dorso's Skate Rink in Corrine, Ohio, and Mr. Dorso, very gruff-looking man, and had very, very hard rules, one which you could not wear blue jeans at his skating rink. And so I wore these awfully ugly brown polyester pants, the only pair of pants I had that were not jeans, and that's what I wore skating. So we were skating, and I I was a little tenuous at first last night, but it's like riding a bike. You you figure it out. I remember how to do turns, and and so at one point, I was chasing Brett before the rink got too crowded, and and because I I was showing off a little bit, I, I had told him what a great skater I used to be, and so I was trying to keep up with him. But he cut a corner a little too close and fell, and I was too close behind him and smashed into him, toppled over, and fell also. We were fine, but as the rink got more crowded, I started to observe the crowd and, and look at the patterns and, and how how to navigate a skating rink because you got you got individual skaters all going different speeds. Some people can skate really well, other people's not so well. And I realized there were certain rules of thumb that you follow when roller skating. One is you keep an eye on your nearest neighbors and to see what they're doing. And you're not looking all the way around the rink. You're generally keeping a, a proxy, a, an idea of what, what those closest to you are doing. And then you maintain some level of space ahead of you in terms of the person ahead of you. There could be people perhaps closer to you on the side, but, but really the key is how far the person in front of you, and you try to keep that space in case they fall down just like Brett did. Now, this is very similar to what researchers found that study flocks of starling that can perform amazing acrobatics in the air. There's an article that I'll link to in the show notes from Audubon Society, and you can get show notes for all the episodes at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my insider's guide, and I'll email all those show notes to you weekly, along with a summary article. You can also sign up immediately for the insider's guide by texting texting the word insider, I-N-S-I-D-E-R, to the number 44222. So this article in the Ottoman Society was discussing researchers in Rome that were on top of a museum, and they had a pair of aligned cameras, and they were essentially following the movements of several thousand starlings. And, and because they had two cameras, they were able to corroborate it. And, and their conclusion was that members of these starling groups were not evenly distributed like on the points of a grid. They weren't evenly spread out. There was a good deal of space behind and in front of them, just like on a roller rink. 
and less space on the on beside the, the the starlings beside each other as well as top and bottom. The biggest space was in front, just like allowing more room in case the flock takes a sudden turn. The other thing the starlings did is they paid attention on the movements of six or seven of their closest neighbors. And by looking at six or seven, that allowed them to to pay attention. And if you only focused on two, there could be a movement of some of the other ones. So they kept it on six or seven. And this avoided, the article said, cluttering their brains so that there wasn't an overwhelming amount of information from the birds that were further away. And so then they would tend to move in the general direction of the neighbors and they would keep an eye on six or seven. And there's a metaphor there for investing. There was so much information out there. And I often get emails from listeners and from members of the hub that just, just feel overwhelmed with the, with the amount of information that is available. And what I have found in investing and from my investment mentors that I have followed closely, it, it is better to focus on a few things instead of trying to cover everything. And so some of the things that I do, everyone has to develop their own investment process, but I focus on asset classes and not individual securities. There are, there are some that like to follow the, the Warren Buffett approach and they focus on individual stocks. I have no interest in that. And I used to, but when I found, it was such a relief to give that up when I did. Because then, so much news I didn't have to follow anymore in, in the, when I used to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal or other periodicals. I don't have to care so much about what's happening. I mean, I'm interested. I mean, t- Twitter it right now is having some challenges, but I, I don't own Twitter specifically as a holding, so I don't have to worry about that. So I focus on asset cl- classes. I focus on maintaining a variety of return drivers with those asset classes. I want a variety. This is diversification. Different things, different asset classes have different return drivers, some be it income, some being growth in the economy, others being real estate fundamentals, or just a variety of different things, and that's important. The other thing I do is I developed reasonable return objectives and understand the risk of investing. It's very important to me to understand what can I earn investing over the the next 10 years. So that helps me with that allocation process and to have realistic expectations. I'm less worried about the day-to-day volatility and more worried about the extreme losses, what's known as maximum drawdown. What What is the potential maximum drawdown for this particular investment, typically based on history? And so that the return expectations is forward looking. But the risk sometimes, instead of worrying about volatility, it can be backward looking. What, what is the worst thing that had happened in the past? How bad the loss has been? For example, for stocks, a, a worst case scenario is about 54% decline over an 18-month period. And so that's kind of a worst case scenario that I keep in mind. But this idea of having reasonable return objectives. Recently, I saw a quote from Rob Arnott. He is the founder of Research Affiliates. He also manages the All Asset Fund for PIMCO, which is a diversified fund of what he calls third pillar assets, assets outside of traditional stocks and bonds, includes commodities and, and, and other type of asset classes. And so the article was, was an interview 
with Rob, just kind of discussing his process for managing this particular fund. And he says, we believe there is value in objectively measuring asset class return expectations. As with most managers, we have no clairvoyant ability to pick tops and bottoms with precisions, but we can forecast long-term returns with surprising efficacy. Anyone can. We fully recognize that our expectations are imperfect and that we have no crystal ball for the future. As Yogi Berra famously remarked, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. We evaluate long-term expectations We evaluate long-term return expectations not for the purpose of anticipating short-term price movements, but rather for assessing comparative valuation levels across a panoply of global markets engaging when they are most at odds with market perception. And and that's what I do. My investing is what I do on the hub. Come up with reasonable return objectives using a building blocks approach, focusing on current dividend yields, focusing on earnings growth and focusing on potential changes in valuations. It happens to be the same process that Rob Arnott uses. It's also the same process that Jack Bogle developed because it's a process that works. Now, that's that's another simple investing rule that it follow. The third, or I guess the fourth, would be to incrementally adjust my allocation based on certain var- variables. Another one of my investment mentors was Steve Luthold. And he ran a firm called the Luthold Group. And I subscribed to his materials for a number of years. And he had something called a major trend index. And it was a multifaceted index that allowed him to adjust his exposure to stocks and, and other asset classes based on market predictions. And every January, he would make Oh, not market predictions, market conditions. Every January, he would make market predictions. And he would always qualify his predictions and says, predictions are for show, ongoing portfolio changes are for dough. He would rely on objective measures. And so instead of trying to follow all the data and all the information, he limited it to certain criteria that, proved successful to him to invest over time to adjust his asset allocation, his long-term allocations. The things that I look at for that is I look at valuations. And because the higher the valuation, the lower the expected return going forward. I look at economic trends, particularly purchaser-manager indices, PMI data, to see, because it's been tightly, highly correlated with future or what actual economic growth is. These are surveys done on a monthly basis. You can get that information and and read. You can get all these press releases every month at Market. M-A-R-K-I-T is a provider. I believe they're at market.com. But I am very in tune to these economic trends because during global recessions, including when the U.S. is in a recession, the average stock market loss has been over 40%. And so I'm very much in tune to economic trends. And then I look at market internals, this being trend, momentum, and that type of data. And that, that's one thing I, we do on the hub on a monthly basis. We look objectively at that criteria and to determine whether markets are red for, for more bearish, yellow for neutral, or green for bullish. 
Now, that's objective criteria. I look at it formally once a month, and that simplifies my life. Just focusing, focusing on asset classes, making sure it's diversified, variety of return drivers, having reasonable objectives, reasonable expectations for returns, being mindful of the maximum potential drawdown for an asset class, and then incrementally adjusting that allocation based on market conditions, particularly valuations, economic trends, and market internals. But there's another thing that I do on occasion, and I did this at the skating rink. While while you're going around the rink, you're you're sort of focusing on those those five to six neighbors. You're keeping that adequate space ahead. You're not going too fast, much faster than everybody else. You can go a little bit faster, but if you get too fast, then you get reckless. But occasionally, I'd get tired, and I'd, I'd sit with LaPro, and we would just watch and survey the entire floor. We'd get a big picture we'd, a- outlook. We would look at the, the, the cliche, the forest from the trees. I like to do that in investing also. Sort of step back and look at the major themes driving the markets. And that's what I wanted to do today. Occasionally, it's just good to step back and say, here's what I see driving the markets right now, the biggest theme. And let's start with the economy. Last year, World economic growth is estimated to have slowed between, to between 2.4% and 3%. And that's down from a range of 26 to 3.4% in 2014. This is data from the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Now, that growth rate fell short of those organizations' forecasts from just six months prior. And so they update a forecast about every six months. And... The forecast was wrong, which goes back to prediction is for show, and because it's very, very hard to predict. Now, economic growth, and, and it was really interesting because I would look at the data, and, and the, the headline was economic growth falls, falls short or, or was subdued. And then my first question is, how are you measuring that? What, what is your measurement of economic growth? And you had, you've, had to dig into the report and find it in the, the footnotes. But broadly speaking, economic growth measures the increase in global output, the monetary value of goods and services produced around the world. And and we know this as gross domestic product or GDP. Now, I I gave the – they they produced some ranges of expectations, 2.4% to 3.1%. The growth rate calculations varies based on the currency exchange rate method used to convert the value of that output into U.S. dollars because it is converted into U.S. dollars. But what exchange rate do you use? If you use current market exchange rates, that gives you a lower expected return. So that 2.4% growth rate was using market exchange rates. The higher growth rate was using what is known as purchasing purchasing power parity. And what that is, that is a hypothetical currency exchange rate calculation that assumes a market basket of goods and services worth the same from one country to the next. So if you would go out and $10 bought you, or say $100 bought you a certain amount of, in terms of this basket of goods and services, they would set the exchange rate of the dollar to the euros where you could essentially buy the equivalent amount, similar quality of goods and services in another country. And so they, they set 
these purchasing power exchange rates. I think the analysis was using the purchasing power parity from 2010. And, and so that gets you a, a little higher growth rate, particularly because the dollar has been so strong recently and that lowered the growth rate using current exchange rates. But that, that's what the growth was. And so the point is, it was slower than it was the prior year and slower than what it typically is at this point in the recovery. And so sort of stepping back and taking that big picture view, the, the question is, why is that? You know, what, what is it? And, and that's a challenging question because in a world that is so interconnected, it is very, very difficult to point to one catalyst that is driving economic trends. Usually it's multiple catalysts. But if I was going to choose one, I would choose China. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. China is the second largest economy in the world. And by some measures, it's the largest economy. Depend, again, it depends on the calculation. And I talked about China back in episode 17. This was in August of 2014. At the time, oil prices were, had just fallen below $100 as measured by West, Te- West Texas Intermediate Crude. End of the month of August 2014, at $95. And in that episode, I talked about this transition that China was undertaking to shift their economy to be more consumer-driven. For three decades, China grew their economy 30 times over by encouraging exports and infrastructure investments. It accomplished that by allowing businesses and local governments to borrow for capital projects at extremely low interest rates, well below the rate of inflation. At the same time, the interest received by households on their bank savings was also below the inflation rate. That meant citizens were losing money every year after adjusting for inflation. It's great to borrow at a rate below inflation, but if you're saving and you're trying to save and earn a return, and essentially you're you're, you're not keeping up with inflation – then you have to save even more. And that's what households, Chinese households were doing. They routinely saved 20 to 30% of their after-tax income for education, health care, and retirement. Now, all of this growth that was fostered by these capital projects did ramp up production 
and infrastructure and investment, and that meant construction and factory jobs were abundant, and that provided households with income that could be saved. This was a phenomenally successful growth model, and it's one that was used by Japan. It's been used by other developing countries over the years. But at some point, you get to where the you just don't get as much bang for the buck as you continue to add more debt to the the country's balance sheet, both the government, the local government, as well as the private sector. And it can lead to overinvestment in some areas. It can lead to bubbles, real estate bubbles. It can lead to bad debts that threaten the banking system. And it can lead to corruption. And the, the Chinese leaders recognize this and want to shift their economy to more consumer-friendly, consumer-driven but that requires increasing the income for households. And one way you do that is you have to increase the, the savings rate or the interest rate that you can get on your savings, the deposit rate, and you, you raise rates so that, that there isn't quite so much investment-driven growth. But it also means the economy is slowing to facilitate that transaction. And if the economy is slowing, there's less demand or the, the growth rate and demand for commodities is not increasing as much as possible or as much as it had been. In 2010, China consumed 53% of the world's cement, 47% of its coal, 45% of its steel, and 47% of its pigs. This was data compiled by the investment firm GMO from a variety of sources Barclays Capital, Credit Suisse, Goldman Sachs, IMF, and the United Nations. China is still a voracious consumer of commodities. But on the margin, growth in demand is slowing. The rate of increase isn't slowing. And that is having a significant negative impact on commodities prices. Recently, the People's Bank of China Governor Zhao, he he was just in, in F, he just talk to the press. He'd been quiet for, for many weeks, if not months, and then he did this extensive interview. I got some quotes from the FET Alphaville blog. He says, China's imports of many of the commodities in volume terms registered positive growth, especially crude oil, but the value of imports dropped. And he's suggesting that China is not responsible for the drop in commodities prices. But I, but I would say but yeah, China and their slowing economic growth is responsible or partly responsible for the drop in commodity prices because that's the demand side, but also have the supply side where the, the, the ramp up in capacity to produce commodities grew extensively to meet this demand and growing demand from China. Now, China is slowing a little bit in terms of their demand at least the growth rate, and that is having a huge impact. Oil prices have fallen over 75% in the past 400 days. And such a large price decline in oil and other commodities is a huge economic drag on commodity exporting nations such as Russia, Brazil. And, and that's when we look at that economic growth globally, the slowdown, the developed nations are doing fine. They're experiencing slow growth, but it is actually expanding. It is the emerging markets and other developing nations, particularly exporting nations, 
that are experiencing economic tailwinds as or economic headwinds due to the drop in oil prices. So to date, the the impact of lower oil prices has been a net negative for global economic growth. The world is awash in oil. Year-over-year growth rate in oil supply has been greater than the growth rate in oil demand since late 2014. Supply, the growth rate in supply is greater than demand. That's highly unusual. The International Energy Agency estimates the supply of oil will exceed demand by 1 million barrels a day for a third successive year in 2016. Some analysts estimate currently oil supply exceeds demand by 2 million barrels a day. At the same time, oil's share of global energy consumption has been in a steady decline due to an uptick in energy production from renewables and, and natural gas. That's according to data from BP and also compiled by, by a friend of mine, Gregor McDonald, at TerraJewel. Oil now comprises 33% of energy consumption, down from 38% in the year 2000. And so you're seeing renewables take a stronger hold. You're seeing developed nations' use of oil is also declining. And that means if there's excess supply over demand, that the, the demand to soak up that extra oil has to come from emerging markets and developing nations. And those are the same developing nations that whose economic growth is slowing. Some in a recession. Brazil in a seriously deep recession. Russia also in a recession. And in the U.S., despite more than a 70% of decline, U.S. oil production increased 8% year-over-year year in 2015. And, but eventually, it's got to slow. The number of oil rigs operating the U.S. Is, has declined to 439 as of year-end 2015. It was as high as 1,600 in the third quarter of 2014. That's data from Baker Hughes. So that, that's what it's going to take. You have China's slow, slowing down their growth rate. Some ana, as analysts estimate their, their economy is actually going much slower than that. That's had a knockoff effect on price of commodities, particularly oil at the same time because we, we were in a commodity boom, a commodity bull. You had a lot of capacity brought online, particularly in the U.S. in terms of oil because of new technology and, and investment. Now you have excess supply of oil. And that has brought the the price down. And some analysts expect prices to fall below $20 before the global supply and demand of oil is brought into balance. Felix Zuloff, an investment manager based in Europe that I have a great deal of respect for, said in the recent Barron's Roundtable, China's troubled economy is to the global financial crisis what the U.S. housing market was in the prior cycle. Many people don't understand this. Now, I'm not quite as bearish as Felix, but I look for spillover effects from the slowdown in China. One is certainly the impact on commodity prices, which in turn is having an impact on non-investment grade bonds. Back in episode 16, which was released July 23rd, 2014, I mentioned how investors had become complacent in regards to non-investment grade bonds. The spread or the yield, additional yield you got over treasuries was down to 2.5%. 
the average spread is 5.6%. Now the spread for non-investment grade bonds is over 8%. The overall non-investment grade bond, a high yield index, yields over 10%. And energy bonds is a huge differential here. Their spread over treasuries is now 21%. There will be defaults in the energy space and junk bond space for energy companies. The question is what that level will be. But now non-investment grade bonds are getting interesting, but we have to wait until at least defaults. Well, first, we need commodity prices to stabilize. Then we need defaults to at least get some better transparency. But now non-investment grade bonds <laughs> finally are looking attractive. I've kept my allocation very low throughout this period, but eventually I, I will increase that. What about other spillover effects of this? Well, there's been capital outflows out of emerging markets. Due to quantitative easing, there was a lot of investment moving into emerging markets, because, but now that emerging market economies are struggling so much, with PMIs below 50, you're seeing capital move out, particularly in China, and that's putting pressure on the Chinese currency. The POB B, POBC Chairman Zhao talked about this in, in the sense that in, in China, when you have huge capital outflows, at the same time you're trying to fix the currency exchange rate, that does impede your ability to conduct your monetary policy to, to raise and lower interest rates. It's called the, the impossible trilemma. And but China's trying to balance it all. They want to have a relatively fixed exchange rate. They want open capital to be able to move in and out of the country, relatively open capital. And they want independence in terms of the monetary policy. They can't have all three. And so speculators are assuming China will, will devalue the currency or depreciate the currency even more. Or that, and that's what Felix Zulov's worried about, and he thinks there could be potential currency wars that emerging market currencies will continue to weaken. And, and as a result, that will hurt the ability of developed nations to export to those countries, and it will have a knockoff effect, and the slowdown in the global economy will, will get even worse. That's why he's talking about this is a symptom. I could go on and on with things to worry about. I could worry myself silly, but I'm not, because I'm going to keep my investing simple. I'm going to go back to the objective things that I look at. I focus on asset classes. It's diversified to maintain a variety of of return drivers. And I have reasonable return of assumptions, looking out 10 years for different asset classes. And I base my allocation on that. Then I incrementally adjust it based on a few variables. I'm focused on economic trends. What are they? What are valuations? And what are market internals? And, and one reason for that is I look at that. You know, my exposure to emerging market stocks, despite their extremely attractive valuation, remains the lowest it's been in many years because the economic trends are negative and the market internals are very, very poor. When that changes, then that will be an opportunity. And that is keeping it simple. We've stepped back and taken a big picture view. We kind of see what the big trends are with commodities. China, those have been going on for several years now. At some point, commodities will bottom, things will stabilize, and hopefully this secular bull market will continue what's been in place since 2009 with an average annualized return, at least through 2014, of about 16%. We'll see if that continues, but it will show up in 
the objective data, and that will provide an opportunity to incrementally reduce risk if things deteriorate further or to increase risk if things stabilize and take advantage of it. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. And I mentioned the Insider's Guide already. I won't mention that. If you want more detailed help, if you want access to reasonable 10-year expected returns and model portfolios, as well as a discussion on smart beta and my ongoing analysis of investment conditions, you can get information for that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.